0: Practice and preparation is everything, right? It's not going to be the exact same scenario that you prepare for, but having the mental model, having been under some duress and stress and understanding how you can identify when and recognize when you are under stress personally, when others are in stress, acknowledge that reset, lift yourself out of that by going back to the routine, back to the thing that you know that preparation, that checklist in your mind, and bringing others out of their basement, right out of their stress and crisis, so that everybody gets back in the routine, gets back in the rhythm you prepared for. Then as a team, you can move forward together. Hi,
1: folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Eric Gorelnik, who is an emergency medicine physician and an associate professor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Gorelnik has served in operational leadership roles at the departmental, hospital, and systems level. He is a Navy veteran and is focused on improving patient care across two main areas. First, ensuring access to healthcare for the most vulnerable patients. And second, supporting collaborations between the civilian and military medical communities. Now, on a personal level, Dr. Grelnick was hugely influential in my own training and his style of leadership and the way that he ran a room as well as a larger team was really, really inspirational to me. So I'm very happy to get a chance to share this conversation with you. We talk a lot in this episode about leadership and we talk about it from a variety of different angles. We talk about leading teams of various sizes and levels of complexity and what the parallels are between those different assignments. We talk about what Dr. grillnick learned about leadership and development and performance pressure from his time in the Navy, and what he continues to learn and experiment with in his current role as an emergency physician. There is really a ton here, and I think you're going to love it. Before we get started, I do have a favor to ask, which is that if you like what you hear on the Emergency Mind podcast, I would love the help getting the word out. So if you could find one to two folks that would benefit and enjoy this podcast, please go out and share it with them. Okay, all that said, let's get into this episode. I hope you enjoy. All right, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is so good to see your face again, even virtually like this. And I'm thrilled to get into this with you and discuss all this
0: awesome stuff. I'm so excited to be here again. I'm so proud of you, Dan. And uh, it's been a pleasure to see you keep charging and uh, growing and growing and growing and building this community that we all can learn from. So thank you, Dan. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. So for folks
1: that don't know you, can you give just a real brief introduction to sort of who you are and what some of your main functions are in in sort of the emergency world?
0: Sure. So- I am an emergency medicine physician at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and an associate professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. So my primary role is working clinically in our emergency department. I also have administrative roles, research role, and education role. My administrative role has been over the course of the decade since I've been here at the Brigham, scaled from uh, my first job as a medical director of Gillette Stadium, so working with the fans and the employees at Gillette Stadium to provide care during football games and concerts and uh, has grown over time through various operational roles. I'm associate clinical director, clinical director, which is the lead physician for coordination with nursing and administrative staff on uh, routine operations in a 24-7 emergency department that sees a volume of 60,000 patients a year. And then scale to a medical director of emergency preparedness first at the Brigham. And then as part of our system, Brigham Health, which is two hospitals about two miles apart from each other that a total about a thousand beds and then moved into more day-to-day operations uh, at a, a hospital and system level as medical director of our access center and network development. So coordination of all transfers and access with telemedicine in some points throughout our uh, system, and now have been involved with various initiatives as we've expanded from local operations at Brigham and to our Mass General Brigham system, which is across multiple acute care hospitals and is the largest a healthcare provider in Eastern Massachusetts. Uh, So that's been the administrative piece. And then there's research in this space, right? um, That's primarily been focused on disaster work to support that preparedness work and pre-hospital trauma care. Some leadership development, which uh, we may uh, spring into today, which is exciting. And the background education piece is a passion for uh, veterans. And uh, students who are going into health profession scholarship, we launched a collaborative at the Harvard Medical School called the Civilian Military Collaborative that's focused on building and supporting our community of veterans who are going into healthcare.
1: So cool. So many interesting and deep, like overlapping and synergistic threads and all of that. This is like part of the reason I've been so excited to explore this with you. I wonder if we can sort of turn back the clock for a while and get back to the beginning. So, before you were leading this team across everything, how did you get started? What got you into thinking about emergencies and thinking about this kind of work at the very beginning?
0: So, emergency medicine, I went to the United States Naval Academy. I was not, medicine was not on my radar. You know, I was focused on, Serving in the Navy in either surface warfare or special operations or special warfare. Those were all interests. And, you know, the fun thing about the Naval Academy is every summer, you essentially, it's like a medical rotation in the sense that you get to experience different things. You spend a month with the Marine Corps, you spend a month with helicopters, whatever it may be. And so I started this journey and graduated the Academy and was a surface warfare officer. So I was on a ship and had a variety of different roles uh, on a ship. And those roles uh, were leading sailors from either 30 to 60 sailors and as a division officer or an assistant department head and serving as an officer of the deck, which is essentially responsible for the safe navigation of a ship. And this was a amphibious dock landing ship. It was a 608 foot long ship that carried 300 sailors and 300 Marines at any given time. And the intent was to launch amphibious assaults So I learned a lot through that experience. And the first piece, again, that drives me towards emergencies is I learned that, you know, my passion clearly through the academy and through my first duty station was service and service to my teammates. So we say in the Navy ship, shipmate self, and that's really been sort of a principle that I've espoused throughout my career. And so that then served afterwards at a special boat unit, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, there are other special boat units. This was based in Panama. And so our job was to do training in riverine uh, warfare with uh, Latin American countries that we were friendly with. And so traveled throughout Latin America and worked with great teams, both in the Navy and other services to you know support that work. And through that, we deployed with a corpsman. And a corpsman is a Navy version of a medic, and I learned so much from uh, two different corpsmen uh, during that deployment, and that really sparked my interest in medicine. Came back to the States, was in San Diego for a bit during that time, started, just showed up at Balboa Naval Medical Center at the emergency department and said, can I volunteer? I mean, I signed up to be a candy striper, right? So nice yeah. volunteering and, and they said, well, wait a minute, come over here, come over here. And so a wonderful emergency medicine doc at the time, Lieutenant Commander Disney, if you're out there, thank you. He said, you know, come on and let's go and so I shadowed him on a bunch of shifts and fell in love with it and then uh, my last duty station I went to you know, worked at boot camp the navy's only boot camp north of Chicago trained recruits during the day took classes at night all the post back classes and went to med school and so during med school did the rotations and clearly there was an interest Toward emergency care, trauma care. I mean, I thought it would be one of those two, and a couple events really sort of pushed me in that direction. One was uh, my close friend from the academy died in Afghanistan; was killed in Afghanistan. Eric Christensen. Sorry, no, thank you. Um, But uh, you know, Eric, uh, you know, I thought about him and and his passions, and why am I pursuing medicine, and where can I best serve? And I thought again, emergency trauma care, and so that sort of pushed me in that direction a bit and then did the rotations stateside here at a variety of different places and just fell in love with emergency medicine. And the idea that in the short amount of time that we have, our relationships with our patients are intense. You get a window on, in many cases, the worst day of people's lives and the ability to, uh, an opportunity to develop that relationship, to develop that trust immediately and provide support in uh, a variety of different ways. Mm on maybe their worst day really sold it for me that this is this is the opportunity where I think I can and best help others
1: all right, so that's amazing. So I, I don't think I've ever actually heard that part of your story before. I think a lot of the time that we spent together, when I was coming up training, was you repeatedly pulling me out of a fire that I'd put myself in in one way or another, and helping me rescue myself and the patient from whatever mess I'd gotten us into.
0: I, I think it was the other way around, Dan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's it's really interesting hearing the way that that comes together. You know, the arc between seeing how teams and units in larger scale things respond to challenges and then finding your own way towards the challenges that you want to face and finding the role of emergencies in in the middle of that. I, I'm projecting here but I would imagine that when you were in your first duty station as we were talking about like you must have seen the way that your ship responded to a crisis, right? You guys have either through drills or casualty exercises or whatever else it was, put yourself in positions and watched people Respond to that event. You must have seen emergencies. And what was that like for that? How was your mindset for that? How was your structure around that? And what did you do as you kept learning about how those teams respond?
0: Yeah, I think what I observed was practice and preparation is everything, right? It's not going to be the exact same scenario that you prepare for, but having the mental model, having been under some duress and stress, and understanding. How you can identify when and recognize when you are under stress personally, when others are in stress, acknowledge that, reset, lift yourself out of that by going back to the routine, back to the thing that you know, that preparation, that checklist in your mind and bringing others out of their basement, right? Out of their stress and crisis so that everybody gets back in the routine, gets back in the rhythm you prepared for then as a team, you can move forward together. And so some of that work, I'm sort of framing that in work that I learned later when I served as an instructor at the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, which is a program here at the Harvard School of Public Health and the Kennedy School, where they discuss this concept of meta-leadership. And they talk about this framework of recognizing when you're in the basement, recognizing when uh, you're under stress, when your catecholamines uh, kick in, and understanding that Managing that by getting back into the routine and recognizing when others are under stress and in the basement and getting back in the routine and then taking everybody up to the next level where you can actually start to innovate and get creative when the situation is a bit different than you had trained for.
1: That's interesting because there's really sort of like three separate skills that you just identified in that. So one is like the introspection of how am I responding to this pressure? What does it feel like on the inside of me when things are getting hot or going bad? And what do I do about it? The second is watching your teammates and colleagues, whether or not they're close teammates or just people that are responding to you in a swarm team or whatever, and looking at them and saying, hey, it looks like this person's a little bit on tilt. How do I recognize that? What do I do about it? And then the third piece is weaving all of those threads together to take the team as a unit, separate from the individuals, away from poor performance or the basement, as you're calling it, back up to its sort of real potential to serve. When you were first doing this, like in those first sort of evolutions, in those first phases, how conscious? of those things were you? Were you trained in them? Were you doing them sort of instinctually? Because I know you said you're grounding some of this, like everything makes more sense backward in time, right? Like we can ground this in theory we know now when we look back at how we performed, but at the time, how conscious of that stuff were you?
0: Yeah. I don't think I was very conscious at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. And it took different moments, you know, whether it's a, I remember chief petty officer, you know, who are the the bedrock of the Navy. Right. And so this chief early on, he's like, Hey, sir, I want to talk to you about something. And he really helped me, you know, I was in the basement and he mm-hmm. really coached me and and helped me through this. And many, there's many events like that along the way where early on, you know, I needed others to help me recognize that because I couldn't recognize it in myself until I was coached. And that's again, why Coaching is so important in whatever career we're in to have that different perspective. And it doesn't matter where it comes from. Someone that is a peer, someone that's a a superior or someone that's a subordinate, regardless any direction, coaching can happen in a 360. And it's great to have and encourage people to empower each other, to speak up, to help us be better. So at the beginning, Dan, I definitely didn't have that insight and others around me who are just awesome and wonderful helped get me there.
1: How do you think we operationalize that? Like, How can somebody listening to this make themselves more coachable and more accessible to the people around them? Because I think what you're saying is a very common thread that I've certainly felt, and a lot of the guests in this podcast have said as well. At the beginning, we're mostly just fumbling our way through things. And it's not like our even our introspection sensors aren't up and operational. We don't really know what's going on inside us. And then most of us experience some sort of a moment where we get exposed to, oh, right, this is why this is happening. And usually it's unfortunately some sense of falling a little bit on our face, right? Like we want to perform at a level and we just can't because we're not there. We're just not ready for it. But this idea of allowing ourselves to be coached is really attractive because gives you all this extra input. And it also, in some sense, cheapens the learning, right? Like if I can be coached, if I can accept you telling me, hey, you're a little bit in the basement here, then maybe I don't have to learn by falling on my face for it. So how do we do that? How do we let ourselves be coached and, and get accessible to that?
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a great question because to your point, maybe it's essential that we do have some learning up front and fumble on our face. Sure. But I think it's this idea of authenticity. It's the idea of openness and willingness. You know, it starts with us uh, leading in every direction so that, you know, we're open and honest with our colleagues. And when I say authentic, meaning having a conversation, you know, Dan, you know, I would love your feedback. You know, I've been challenged with XYZ during, you know, so during this shift, I'd love your help to think about that. If you observe this, you know, help me, call me out. And, uh, you know, setting that principle and, you know, this idea of, The basement and using some common vernacular, some common vocabulary is really helpful because imagine if not only you learn these skills and terms, you work with your team. So you establish this culture of openness and sort of connectivity around coaching, bi directional coaching. The idea that I could turn to you, Dan, and say, Hey, Dan, you're in the basement. You know what that means? That helps Mm -hmm. you take a minute and reset and then reengage. There's a bit of culture. There's a bit of shared expectations and definitions. And most importantly, it's starting with us and being open to that feedback.
1: Yeah, I love the idea of both the individual choices we can make, and then also the examples we can set for each other that sort of steers the entire group and unit towards wanting to get better at this right? Because you have to have sort of that underlying desire and then, and then the ability to nudge each other in various directions. So you got some of this at the beginning. You got folks that said, hey, Eric, like let's talk, let's sit down and talk. And here's some things you might do. And then what? What did that next part look like? Were you experimenting on yourself? Were you trying to put things in practice with large groups of people all at once? Or how did that next sort of phase work?
0: Well, I'm still experimenting. I'll tell you how it goes. You know, it's, it's, it's every conversation, including this one. I mean, you know, I think it's, you learn some of your strengths and it's, it's hard, but it's, we have to do it right. And that's open up your weaknesses and be direct and say, where do I need to improve and focus on that and getting a lot of different feedback. So early on, I got great feedback from, you know, my sailors, Fellow officers, uh, et cetera, and, and you know, moving then moving to a different unit and having a, a new uh, group that I worked with, a new team, and different teams on different deployments, and getting feedback in a variety of different ways. You know, each experience helps you grow, and that growth at times can feel really painful, right? And so, you know, you just try to process and improve and continue to climb forward. So, I think the willingness to accept. That there's always opportunity for improvement and always learning is, is I think, a really an important skill that we all should share. Yeah,
1: that's definitely something that you had modeled for me and for everyone when I was training underneath you. I think that it's very clear when you're looking ahead at your leaders and you watch them experiment on themselves and you create this sense By doing that, of oh, this is normal. It's not like you get from A to B and then all of a sudden you're perfect. Actually, you get from A to B and you're just running like better experiments than you were when you were at A, and that's like such a, such an important concept that, that now, you know, I try to model for my residents when I'm teaching them is that, Hey, I'm still running experiments. And I've, I've issued this challenge before on the podcast and I've gotten called out on it by several of my interns, actually my brand new interns, which is that I, I always say that any of my residents at any time can come up and ask me, Dan, what are you experimenting on in yourself? And I mm-hmm. should have an answer ready for them both <laughs> with like what I'm trying and what I think is going to happen about it. Because I want that to be forward in in the mind. And I forget which intern it was, that the first time we worked together, was like our very first presentation and end of the presentation then goes, and what are you working on? And I was like, oh, all right, (laughs) we're working on the culture here. Let's do it. And I, I really appreciate that. I want to shift just slightly still in the realm of leadership. One of the challenges that we face a lot, whether it's in emergency medicine or it's on a ship or in almost any environment that's high performance like this, is that we have teams that are really mixed. We have teams that are not just our people that we've trained, right? but we have teams that come from different trainings and different backgrounds. Sometimes there's direct lines of command. Sometimes it's a little confusing who's in charge of what, and we all have to come together to get something done. What have you found about that particular challenge and maybe what's different for you about it that you're running these much larger scale teams?
0: Yeah, I think uh, you've struck an important issue and- you know, we all work in a matrix and sometimes that matrix, maybe it's a little more linear. You could argue the Navy experience is a bit more linear, but at times it was very matrix, right? Working with the Mexican Navy, for example, and working with their teams and trying to understand the relationships and how we can best support them at different relationships on the ground versus in the embassy versus in their equivalent of their Pentagon, working through the different leadership chains. And the same thing can be said of medicine. So thinking about an academic medical center versus a community hospital and different teams uh, that we work with and different missions. And so I guess as Simon Sinek loves to say, you know, it's all about the why and uh, trying to understand what the why is and defining that and getting everybody towards that goal and identifying from the outset, what we share, what's the mission and do we all share and espouse that mission? And then it's really all about the tactics, right? It's all about the implementation. It's all about the execution because ideas are great, but it's execution is everything. And so thinking about how we go from the idea to the execution. And right now we're in a phase of at Mass General Brigham, which it used to be Partners Healthcare when you were there, Dan, and then we just converted to a new name and we're moving more as a system, which is really exciting. And there's different perspectives on this. There are individuals that are all in and uh, they want to support this work. There are uh, individuals that have, you know, worked uh, within their hospital and their system for some time and a bit more resistant to that change. And so we've really got to get to why and see if we can, you know, continue to move the needle to build synergies that really are focused on patient. And that's the one thing we all share. It's the patient. So in healthcare, right, it's all about the patient. So if we can start with that and build out from there, that's how we found some success at you know moving the needle on some of these projects.
1: When you're running some of these larger scale operations, when you're doing things like looking at preparedness or uh, when you were running the response to the COVID-19 pandemic out of the ER, how do you do What you just said. How do you nail down the underlying why and then translate that into high performance operations?
0: Well, you know, think about a resuscitation, right? A code, a patient that's sick. In our emergency department, on that micro level, bedside level, patient care, it's crystal clear what the why is, right? It's crystal clear to everybody in that room. It's taking care of that patient that's in front of you. And so you see this relentless focus on resuscitation. You know, there's different dynamics and, you know, roles and responsibilities depending upon the code, the location, the patient condition, et cetera. But there is that focus. And so the challenge is not to get people focused on that resuscitation. The challenge is coordination of the team so that there you minimize redundancy, you're ensuring that there's closed loop communication and as safely and rapidly resuscitating the patient, which is different than a longitudinal initiative. Right. And so that in many cases, it takes work to get to the epiphany that we're all really trying to take care of that bedside patient. That takes a bit of work sometimes to get there through, again, openness, honesty, understanding where people are what their perspective is, what their views on the mission are, how to integrate their views and perspectives and support them so that everybody is heard, everybody's acknowledged, and we move forward together. And it may not be exactly the way that you thought about it, that I thought about it, but you know, starting with active listening and being heard, uh, listening to individuals on the team so that Everybody feels like they're part of the solution and are part of the solution because together with that diverse perspective, we certainly add significantly to the mission and complement it and improve you know, our ultimate result. I think that's really a key piece here is in engagement is, again, sort of getting to that idea of we're all focused on that patient in front of us, and maybe we're doing it a bit differently, and maybe it's a different project or team, but it's all about the patient.
1: You drew a parallel or a connection there that I think is a really important one to explore, which is the microcosm of a resuscitation universe in a particular resuscitation bay, and the more macrocosm of how a system or an emergency care system or a hospital system responds to a wide variety of things. And one of the connections you drew between there is the underlying purpose right? Both the large emergency system, emergency preparedness system, and the small resuscitation bay and the team is designed to take care of humans, right? That's our mission to take care of the people that we are encountering. What else do you think connects those two? And I guess what I'd like to do is set up a tension between the structures and mental models that work in small scale resuscitation versus what works in larger scale universes. What have you found as you move between those two worlds?
0: I think the challenge on the projects, not the bedside care, is that, again, it's a matrix and there are a lot of competing priorities in many cases, a lot of different structures and individuals and organizations and different roles and responsibilities, you know, in in the healthcare system, clinicians administrators and uh, other roles across the organization. So there are a lot, a lot more complexity, quite frankly, than bedside care, where it's docs, PAs, nurse practitioners, nurses, technicians, and the team. So, And the other piece is the sort of improvement or negative impacts, right? In resuscitation, in many cases, you can see that pretty rapidly, right? You give a liter of fluid, you're going to see, is that going to increase the blood pressure Or is the patient still hypotensive, right? Do I need to move depressors, et cetera, right? So there's most cases you see something pretty rapidly. Obviously procedures are much more rapidly. You're going to see a response. The arc of projects is much longer and it's much more incremental. It may take many discussions, many meetings, many conversations, many one-on-ones, group meetings, smaller unit meetings to move the needle an inch. But that incremental change is what eventually moves mountains. And you just have to, in many cases, be resilient because you may take a step forward, you may take two steps back. But I think that's part of the challenge, especially in a world that feels like there's a big emphasis on instant gratification. It is challenging to take on the incremental change. And so keeping the team Motivated, you know, focused on the patient, focused on the mission and having that clear vision, a shared vision and having the roadmap to get there and understanding that that roadmap is a static picture because life is dynamic and things change. People change, missions change, patients change. So being adaptable, but to continue that arc and to continue forward is knowing that your efforts, your team's efforts are going to improve patient care, that's what it's all about. And so continuing that mission and continuing that slow walk forward. So I think to me, those are the core differences between a bedside resuscitation and a longer term project or administrative project.
1: So interesting. So we've explored on the podcast and, and in the Emergency Mind Project in general, a few times, the idea of a kind versus unkind learning environment, right? A kind learning environment has really tightly coupled process to outcomes and the ability for you to see what happens when you make an experiment and change something. Often we're doing that in the context of saying that emergency medicine is actually not that kind of a learning environment, right? Or it's, a, it's sort of an unkind learning environment in that there's often a decoupling between what we do and what happens to the patient, or we might not see the outcome of it. So it's harder to sort of tune our experiments. But actually you're sort of saying the opposite of that, which is that comparative to doing larger scale operations, it's a much more much kinder environment, I guess is the word for that. Am I reading
0: that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the the idea of improvement science is to to measure, right? And so thinking about these projects and clearly from the outset, defining an objective, an aim, right? A specific measurable aim with a time and clear outcome that you're looking at with a clear outcome metrics, with process metrics. So not only the outcome, right? X percentage of patients should do X versus the sort of incremental steps in the process that we should measure to understand if in fact, are we actually doing this as we've outlined this process map, right? Did Eric call Dan? Eric is supposed to call Dan every day at 8 AM. If the outcome measure is when Eric calls Dan, one more patient is transferred from Faulkner Hospital, Brigham Hospital. If we don't know that Eric is calling Dan each day as a process measure, we don't actually know if we've done something different, right? And then there's a balance measure, right, which is you know thinking through a balance measure. So when we think about transferred patients from one, in in our case, we could talk about the the case of a program we have transferring patients from the Brigham emergency department to the Faulkner general medical services inpatient unit, which you participated in. Right. Yeah. That started
1: right as I was coming up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So now we've scaled that to every hospital, almost every hospital in our system. And so a balance measure for that is patients that land at a community hospital and they then escalate to an ICU level of care within 24 hours. So the question is, were they appropriately triaged? Were they stable during that timeframe? It's not hundred percent, you know, there may be other factors, patients' conditions change, but it gives you a sense of, well, maybe in this case, the clinical condition of the patients that we're seeing, if we see a trend that more of them are being escalated IC level care, we need to rethink about the parameters of the types of patients that we send uh, to that hospital. So thinking about balance process and outcome measures throughout this, those are ways to measure, you know, that could be your kind environment on these Mm -hmm. projects. And so really clearly defining that from the outset. And that's where, at least in my observation, the projects that tend to move forward and actually have measurable results, they tend to build and build and build and can see progress because the team sees some progress. You see incremental change, you see a move forward and you measure it. I want to wrap a little context around this because we're sort of talking
1: about a thing here that you and I understand because we've been in the middle of it, but might not be obvious to other people. So what we're discussing is a situation where you have, let's call it like a mothership hospital and satellite hospitals of one form or another, and people present to the emergency department at the mothership hospital. And one of the options you have is to admit them as an inpatient to a satellite hospital facility. Now, not that those satellite hospital facilities also have usually functioning emergency departments and are great in their own right. So they're not really a dependency, but that's just sort of the structure that we're working with. And what we're describing is a protocol to move patients through a system in a particular way and how important it is to set up the right measures to understand if you're doing that well and if that's also good for the people that you're moving through that system. This happens to be one that Eric and I both participated in in one form or another you certainly much more than me but that i think wraps a little context around that because the underlying arc of the interface of improvement science and emergency medicine is so deeply fascinating right how do we know that we're doing a good job how do we know that we're doing better how do we leverage all of our team in order to improve our performance in these moments that really matter the most i guess this is a good time to ask a question that i've been i've been personally sort of digging on for a while here which is how do you know who a good emergency doctor is. And in the context of, uh, that was great. You guys can't see it, but I, I, got, I got a sigh and sort of a look off to the side for that question, which is exactly what I'm looking for. So if you had a room full of emergency doctors, attending level board certified people, and I made you pick the best one, how would you do it? I've been thinking about this question for a while in part because when you smash improvement science and emergency medicine together. One of the questions that does come up is how do you measure if things are working and getting better on an internal side, I'm running all these experiments and I want to know if I'm getting better. So what standards do I hold myself to? You know, when I'm in jujitsu practice, I can learn pretty quickly. If I do this thing and it's wrong, somebody chokes me. Okay. That's like a very quick learning style, If I'm in emergency medicine, sometimes it's a lot harder to figure out how to do that. We recently had a guest in the podcast who was talking quite a bit about the idea of psychometric testing to predict certain levels of performance. So there's there's all this cool stuff that revolves around this question of what's a really good emergency doctor? And in some sense, am I one of them?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. When I process that to think about how do you measure a good emergency medicine physician? There's sort of the standard measures that people use, and I'm quite frankly not sure of the correlate, right, which is clearly patient satisfaction and experience, right, Um, those are important. Your care is ultimately what is most important, how you care for patients, but how do you objectively measure that is quite challenging. I do think from a non-objective measurement piece, the ability to build trust uh, with your team is ultimately one of the key factors of successfully caring for a patient. Really that to me is one of, if not the bedrock of what we do, it's building trust with the patient, most importantly, and building trust with your teammates to take care of that patient.
1: A hundred percent agree with you on that being one of the key pillars, right? To be successful, you have to build a team that functions well together, in this environment that functions well together in a variety of pressure filled, chaotic situations. And part of that is creating those dyad individual relationships, right? You and the patient, you and your head nurse, you and the other doctor in the room, whatever it is. And then part of that is beyond that is understanding the complexity of the system that you're trying to build. And sort of a workaround metric is like, you know, is the team better because you're there? Right, like if you swapped two identical teams out and put Eric in versus Dan in, you know the team that had Eric in would be better at the end of the day, and you'd be like, oh,
0: therefore Eric is a better ER doctor. Like maybe that's some approach to it. I have no idea how to. But do how this. do you define better? Right, right, right. That's that's the key question. You know, Google did an interesting this Google Oxygen study a few years ago, and they looked. At, they did a series of interviews with employees and really. The question was around what is the key leadership trait for a successful leader or team? And again, I'm not sure they define objectively what success is, but trust was the clear factor that came across. They've done some interesting work in that space. And I think that study was from two or three years ago. So Eric, what do you personally do to build trust then? I think it starts with developing relationships with my colleagues and peers, right? My teammates. My teammates. One of my mentors, Steve Bohan, who I'm not sure if you ever, you know, Steve, absolutely, Dr. yeah, Dr. Bohan, would never be Steve or Captain right. Bohan. He used to say, learn all the names of the children of the nurses that you work with. And so that's, that's leadership, you know, really getting to know people, know what makes them tick, know what their passions are, know how you can best support them. That to me is building trust with your team. And most importantly with the patient, you know, I start with being me, being authentic and- mm-hmm. Walking in the room, uh, introducing myself, who I am, uh, introducing the team, and how our job—we're here to best take care of you and listen, and really try to understand why they're there. And summarize with them, you know, at the end of the discussion, to summarize and repeat back basically, "Here's here's what I heard. Is that correct? And if so, here's our plan." And outline the plan and provide them an estimate of how long you think it's going to take. Right. An expectation around timing of testing, labs, whatever it may be, and when you'll circle back. I think just setting up that expectation at the beginning, which is, I heard you. Here's what we're going to do about it. Here's where we're going to try to figure it out. Here's what I don't know. Here's how long I think it's going to take. And I also, you know, ask them and empower them to, you know, reach out if they have a question or concern. Ring the bell, walk out of the room, call us over. You can look in real time. In our case, we have a system on a phone. You can check your labs and imaging. You're going to see that before I do. So if you see it, look at it and let us know. Right. And so that's how I at least start the conversation with patients.
1: You know, there's one thing that you didn't say that if you're listening to this and you've ever had the opportunity to work with or study under Eric is what happened before he walked into that room, which is that he got there two shift, ready to go, scalpel, in pocket, at least 15 to 20 minutes early before the shift starts every single time. I've never seen you be anything less than 15 to 20 minutes early to the start of your shift. At one point I asked you about it. I remember, and I, I said some version of like, why are you here so early? And you said something that stuck with me for the entire thing. Uh, this is, this is great. I, man, the facial inspections are great. You're, you're like, <laughs> I have no idea where this is about to go. And I love it. And oh, it's, it's, all, yeah. it's all good things, which is that you said some version of You never know what's going to happen right at the beginning of your shift. And if your job is from seven until whenever to be the person that people can rely on to try to help another human and move this thing forward, then you need to be ready to go before that starts. And that's part of bringing authenticity to what we do. It's part of bringing our passion to what we do. And it's part of understanding that we're here to serve and that service requires us to be ready to go. And you told me that and then wandered off to continue setting up. And I remember sitting there being like, that's, yeah, that's exactly what I want to be doing. And so now in LA, everybody makes fun of me for showing up early to shift because that's not the West Coast culture. But I just want you to know, I'm still doing that because what you're describing about that.
0: I I hope you wear your Birkenstocks then at least. (laughs) (laughs) I do do not. (laughs) West Coast.
1: (laughs) Oh man. But what you're describing that it comes from that place of authenticity about really having done the internal work, looking at yourself to figure out who you want to be and how you want to serve, and then showing up with that to that moment, whether it's to your team or to your patient or hopefully to both and everything. I'm not sure what the end of the sentence is going to be other than thank you for for helping
0: to teach me that. Well, Dan, thank you. It means the world to me that I had a small impact on you. You know, we start this off you know, praising you. I'm so proud of you and, and thankful for what you do. And it's really amazing to see uh, where you are and where you're going. So thanks so much for inviting me today.
1: It is an absolute pleasure. And I just want to give you a space if you want to issue a challenge to people listening to this, anything that you want them to try or do differently, or that you wish they'd get a chance to explore in their own lives, whether they're in the emergency department or not, what you want them to pick up and run with after listening to
0: this. It almost goes back to where we started. Many people helped me recognize when I was in the basement and understanding how to acknowledge when you're in the basement on your own, understanding how you can get yourself out of the basement, understanding how you can recognize when others are in the basement and encouraging them to get out of the basement. That's leadership. And so the challenge is to take that on, think about yourself and build those structures for you and your team. Amazing. Eric, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. All
1: right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure. And you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.